Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I am Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we have ourselves a brand new world champion. Yes, we do. Congrats to PV. Of course, I chose PV as my champion, as all of our smart listeners certainly did. I mean, slam dunk pick, right, Jerry? You picked PV as well, right? I didn't pick anyone because I'm lazy. Oh, sorry about those whammies. Although, actually, I don't know what I get for picking PV, and I yeah. I don't think I've gotten anything. So I, I guess we all are big losers here. I, I'm sure there's something coming my way eventually. Well, I, I also did not know what was really up for grabs. I do think it is cool for them to institute rooting interest. Hearthstone yeah, yeah. used to do that to some degree, and whenever they had one of their big tournaments, I, you know typically chose someone and then got some boosters out of the deal or whatever. But I, I do think it is cool. And I agree. I think it's also pretty cool if, you know, like say 70% of the people chose Paulo or something like I, I would hope that they would tell him something like that, you know, because that's just like a cool stat, a cool thing to know that like that many people are behind you, backing you, rooting for you and stuff like that. But, you know, I would, I would imagine that the field was, mostly pretty flat with a few outliers, although Paulo should certainly be one of them. Yeah, I think so as well. Like I said, an almost unsurprising result. And obviously, look, every single player in this tournament, extremely, extremely talented. Anyone could have won it. But I saw Apollo playing what I believe to be the best deck. I mean, almost certainly the best magic player in the world right now. And what does that mean? Explain that. I, I don't know what that means. I mean, it's like all these other platitudes. They don't really have any assignable value, but it's things we say as pundits to have something to talk about. Like you, what if he, what if he got second? Would you say that Marcio is the best player in the world? I don't know. Probably. I have to make up some kind of narrative. I mean, this is like sports talk radio one hundred and one. Like you have put these people on these pedestals, and really, there's no discernible difference from this player's play at this moment. Now, when you talk about body of work then I think you can start getting into some real discernible differences. And that's where PV is starting to make some real headway. It was Kai and John forever. And I, I don't know. I mean, PV is certainly on that level at this point and deserves to be part of the greatest of all time conversation. Dude, he, he is the goat. End of yeah, story. You're, just, you're just done with it. That's it. Number one. So I look at John as someone who just has immense natural talent. Mm-hmm. And Kai obviously has natural talent as well, but he was mostly uh, a product of hard work, right? Like if you if you kind of like buckle down, learn the format, and spend a lot of time and spend it smart, you two can end up just like breaking formats and just absolutely dominating. And I think Paulo is a very good mix of the two. And one of the things that kind of drives it home for me is that he has the results he has despite being from Brazil. Yeah, that's huge. It gets understated, if anything. Right. If he, if he, if he was in the U.S., what would his results look like? I have no idea. Unfathomable. He, he would have like 10 GP wins and like would have been platinum in like 2005 or whatever rather than just like, you know, showing up to... Uh, a pro tour like whenever he could and like how many tournaments did he have to miss because he was a child or didn't have money or the the flights were like three thousand dollars and too difficult to justify like his results would be absurd if he was in the u.s yeah you make a great case and i i have no objection to people who put paulo number one i am still sorting out my own number one at this moment but i think it's just between paulo and john at this point and 
leaning Paulo. I mean, it's been an incredible run recently and throughout his entire career. And he's doing it at a time when magic is being played at a higher level than it's ever been played. I know people like to romanticize the past, but this is the era of the greatest magic players. There's no question. The resources are better. The tools are better. People are just so much more informed. Fields are much tougher. This is the best era of magic players we have ever seen. Yeah. And I mean, I think for the most part that just continues to grow. Right. But yep. yeah, the, the average player certainly much better than the average player in like 2000, 2005. It's possible that we have, le- well, it, it's almost certain that we have like less of a Delta between the tippy top players and like the next scrum of players you know right. like maybe the, the difference between like platinum and gold level or whatever or like world caliber and platinum caliber i think that those differences are so small and i mean it's kind of weird to just say like the average skill level has gone up a lot which then makes it just the new average or whatever but you know what i mean right like yeah. the average the average player today is a much stronger player than in 2005 2010 yeah i think that's indisputable and i, I always do feel kind of like bad having these conversations because it's hard to lift up someone without diminishing the accomplishments of someone else. And I want to emphasize that like John and Kai still amazing, still incredible, still deserve all the accolades. When I put Paulo up on this pedestal, it's not to diminish what they have done, but it's hard to do this without putting someone else down, you know, and I always feel guilty about it, but all incredible players in their own right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. I mean, like even, john versus pv today right like it's still close like they're still very very good and it probably comes down to whether or not you know john likes the format and is engaged or if he has other stuff going on in his life or whatever like obviously he could show up to a tournament and just win with like very little practice and not really knowing what's going on or whatever like he is that good but yeah like both of them at at their current possible peak right now it's still close they're they're still very very good i just think that Paulo has mostly demonstrated a consistency that is kind of unreal. And certainly since their peaks, like, you know, obviously John has had incredible results. Uh, Kai, really not so much, but I don't like he hasn't been super invested as far as I know, you know? Right. So I, I think that that is all understandable. And what what Kai did is never, never going to be topped, right? Like he has that for life. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, each each one of these people deserves their own amount of respect, their own recognition for their accomplishments. So I'm glad we took an opportunity to do that. Anything you want to say about the actual play of the tournament? As far as a broadcast, I call it the best magic broadcast I've ever seen. I thought everyone did a really tremendous job, particularly with draft presentation. They made draft engaging, which is like something I've begged for for ages and ages. And you know, I've taken the stance often that it's time to remove draft from these type of broadcasts, but that was under the assumption that we weren't willing to put in the effort to fix it. Like I didn't like the default of draft broadcast. This particular presentation of draft justifies its continued inclusion. And I would love to see something focused on draft, like just one event a year that really hammers home. This is part of the magic ecosystem. It's something we all still really care about. If you had a qualifier for a draft only championship, that would be the one thing that would drag me out of my house and have me grinding PTQs to get into that draft mix. So it was a really nice highlight for that aspect of play. And just the broadcast quality in general keeps getting better and better for these arena events. Well, you did get out of bed for a draft PTQ. I did. And it's, that was so it's an indisputable fact. 
Right. And that was to qualify for a mostly constructed event. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it is very clear that, yes, if they want to capitalize on you specifically. Just me. Yes. Draft tournament. Yep. I did not watch any of the limited portion of the tournament because it hasn't been engaging for me. I was not aware that they were doing anything differently. I honestly have no idea what they did because I didn't hear anyone say anything about it except for you. So do you think that it is something that appealed to you specifically, or do you think that it actually had widespread appeal for people who wouldn't normally enjoy the limited portion? So look, my my bubble is my bubble, and I can only share what I saw, the people who surround me saying, and the people who surround me are generally people who are hyper-invested in magic. That being said, a bunch of them don't have any interest in limited, never had had interest in, in limited before. But for this event, there were a lot of people who were like, this is the first time I've cared. I am into this. I like this. There's something special happening here. And that's not something I've ever seen from these people before. So that says something. But still, this is the most enfranchised base you can possibly find. So take it for what you will. I don't know what the average viewer thought about their being limited as part of the broadcast. Yeah, uh, I'm somewhat loath to check Reddit these days. I I used to look at it a decent amount, not necessarily for the Magic subs, but for other stuff. And I'm just kind of off it at this point. But I would be curious what the general consensus is over there. Yeah, didn't look there. Not sure. Yeah, I I feel like that would be a way to get the best gauge for what the general populace thinks. Sure. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, Obviously, if they are doing good work, they are making it engaging, keep it up, keep going. But I don't know. I feel like maybe a year from now, a couple years from now, you get uh, Pioneer on Arena. Worlds can be like those two formats or something. That'd be fine with me. What was the reaction from the like the players actually playing in the tournament to have worlds on arena did you get to catch any of that i don't know that anyone was super vocal about that decision at least the participants it seemed to be just kind of a non-issue i mean these players are mostly mpl players or again the most invested possible players so they have all had the experience of playing these arena pro tours before they basically know the deal nobody really expressed any discontent with that and well, I, they can't really. I know. Yes, there is the, always the looming possibility of fines should they speak out against it. I, I would not expect any discontent. However, I do feel like if people are speaking up in support of it, that is likely true. Right. I don't know that it went as far as unequivocal support for playing the games on Arena, but there's no disputing the fact that these tournaments... Okay, here's what I'm going to say. The number that I see in the corner for viewers of these tournaments is about 5x higher than the paper ones. That's all I can really say about it. That's the information I'm provided. So it certainly seems like there's a bunch more engagement when we move these events to Arena. And if it's 5x, you just can't ignore that. But are those real numbers? I don't care. I, I mean, I can't, I can't comment on that. I have no idea. It's not that I don't care. It's that this is what I have and I have no idea. So 5x numbers, it means something. And, and they're comparable with other esports numbers. And I think that's the thing you have to take away is that you're doing similar numbers to, you know, not the top tier of esports, but certainly the second tier. And if there is something being done with the viewership counts for MTG Arena, then I am sure those same things are being done with esports in the second tier as well. So as long as you're doing comparable with the esports sphere, then it looks like your performance is pretty good. 
Sure. I will say that compared to last year, specifically uh, doing advertising through MTG Arena directly, having it be on like the homepage, the landing page, I think was great and is uh, something that they could just do more of in general. Yeah, I agree. That was a really nice touch. The feel was just different. Too. I mean, that's the that's the biggest thing I can get to is that obviously I have a bunch of forms of social media and one of them being our Discord for our patrons, another being Twitter, but it felt like everyone was watching. It felt like everyone in my sphere cared, was 100% invested. And in those final moments of the tournament, the drama felt real and sports-like and intense. And uh, it was a feeling that I hadn't really felt in a long time. And it was awesome. Cool. I watched Saturday, but not Sunday. Does that make sense? Uh, no, not really. So, <laughs> Sunday was great. I mean, Sunday was such high stakes magic and so intense, uh, but I understand life getting in the way and there's always VODs. So I'm not going to judge anyone who doesn't get a tournament experience live. I've been there many, many times. Well, I wouldn't say that life necessarily got in the way. I don't know. Like we, we had kind of like a viewing party on Saturday. Mm-hmm. You actually came out and hung out I for did. a little bit. I left my house. Yeah. Ephra was there. Uh, we went to the home of Michael Majors and Andrew Brown and some other folks and just kind of like chilled out on the couch and watched some standard action. And that was fun. I, I liked doing that, getting together with people and everything, but just like, I don't know, being home uh, effectively alone on Sunday, I was just, you know, getting stuff done. And obviously if people like wanted to come over and watch it, I would have done that, but I wasn't going to do it by myself. Right. Yeah. M- most of my viewing tends to be passive. It's something I keep on while I do other stuff, but by the end of the tournament, the the last match, Paolo versus Marcio, I watched every second of it and was completely glued to my screen, watched nothing else. So it, it was a total home run for me. Cool. Yeah. I mean, how, how much did it matter that Paulo was the person you picked too? I mean, like, obviously that means that you have some interest, some vested interest in him doing well, but I mean, it, it's nebulous as far as like what was actually on the line, right? I would assume that you right. thought you were going to get three booster packs if he won or something, but yeah, like- that, that, had, that had no impact on my investment. Okay. It's just like, I just want to know who the champion's going to be. And certainly I've interacted with both these players before. Uh, I'm not going to paint it like I'm close with either, but I've chatted with Paulo a bit. I've chatted with Marcio a little bit. And, you know, when there's people you have a relationship with, you, you want to see them succeed. You want to see their greatest moment of triumph. It's something cool to see someone achieve after many, many years. So that certainly plays into my rooting interest. It's, it's weird how when you've gotten very close to a scene, it's just different when you like know the people and it's hard for me when I don't know the participants to get really invested in the outcome. But when I do, it turns it up to another level because you know how much it means to these players. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I also think that there's kind of a lot at stake because both of them have great careers, but neither of them had one world. So no matter what you knew that it was going to be a huge thing for someone else. And there are also people who are in like the conversation for, best current player or whatever. So it's like, obviously that's going to move the needle a lot. And yeah, like even aside from money and points and stuff like that, like there, there is a lot going on and a lot at stake. Yeah. And uh, on Marcio's side, like Marcio is still really looking for that big win. Like the, the first place, obviously an incredible career, incredible achievements for Marcio, but you want to hoist the trophy. It means a lot. Uh, So that was also another huge narrative as we went into the finals. I don't know if it, obviously it's hard to be in that situation, but like, you know, me looking back at my career or whatever, it's like, I would take 
seven seconds at big tournaments rather than like winning one or whatever. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously the function of doing so matters, but everyone's built differently. First of all, like that might work for you, but I know many, many players who are eaten up by not hoisting the trophy. They want that, that scoreboard, you know, point to the big lights. There's my name. I did it. I have this one thing I can, hold up as the crowning moment of my career. And I can't fault them for feeling that way. No, legit. So I saw this picture on social media that is just absolute darling. It is Paulo returning home. Mm, His family met him at the airport and huge family. There's like 20 people in this picture, right? And they all had like these banners printed out, like pictures of him, like holding the trophy and just like the lights and the confetti dropping and everything. And uh, one of the banners had like the world championship logo on it and everything. And it's just like, that is so cool. And it makes me wonder like, what would they have done if he got second? Yeah. I mean, that's why, <laughs> that's why he won first. That's, that's part of the reason is you can't have that same fanfare. You know, I'm I'm sure his family would still be there for him, still supporting him, still very proud of, of him, but it's, it's that experience that you fight for that you really want that first place. And look, a lot of magic tournaments, and not with a bang, but with a whimper. It's just quiet, two people in a rapidly emptying convention center, and they don't have that really overwhelming feel. But these arena tournaments absolutely do. The confetti, the trophy, the celebration, that matters. It, it does as far as the experience goes, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I thought that was just like all of the canister hype machine. I didn't know that it actually happened when other people were winning too. You thought he just rolled his own hype machine with him? Yeah, yeah. I, I could see that happening. <laughs> Putting that MPL money to good work. Right. Anyway, Paulo, the GOAT, uh, gets to scratch this off his bucket list, which I'm sure was a huge item. So that is rad. Super happy for him. Hope that this continues to light a fire under him and not, you know, like a lot of people are like, well, I reached kind of like my goal or whatever, or the pinnacle. So like, yeah, I don't see that happening here. Yeah, me either. I mean, he's, he's just been at it for so long, right. That it's like, I I just don't think that that fire is ever going to die. Same. So, uh, this episode is supposed to be about pioneer. So I guess we could talk about that. I've been playing a little bit on magic online and we're, we're, we're creeping closer and closer to maybe this becoming a reality on arena. I know it's still a ways out, but it's like, I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, it's acknowledged at this point. And yeah. I, I thought this would take much longer to be part of the conversation than this juncture. But here we are. And it seems like I, I don't remember exactly where it fell on the roadmap, but you know, it's being worked on. It's being discussed. And that's wild to me. Yeah. And they also announced that they want to get Arena on mobile, too, which I I initially wanted very badly. And then... You know, some some folks pointed out various game states where it would just become a nightmare, you know, something like a green white tokens mirror or whatever. It's like, what the hell are you going to do? So I hope they implement some clever fixes for that or at least, you know, don't pair you against any deck that makes tokens when you're playing on mobile. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty doable on iPads, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. But it does seem like they are trying to extend to phones. And that is where I'm just like, I, I don't understand how this can possibly happen. I hope it happens. It'd be incredible if it did happen. And I guess it's going to. We'll just have to see how the interface is and how user-friendly it is. Because you know that makes up a huge portion oh, of yeah. 
your engagement with the product. And I've talked a lot about how when I first played Arena, I hated it. I was just disgusted by it. And nothing really happened except it was made smoother and easier to use. And then I was like, okay, now I'm into this. I don't like playing things like Team or Rec on Arena. And okay. I, I guess I would not like playing them on Magic Online either for whatever that's worth. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, any anytime I'm playing like a beatdown deck or a mid-range deck or whatever, like I, I am really digging Arena and I would be happy to be able to play decks like that on mobile. And I don't know if a game gets too bogged down, I guess I concede. It just kind of is what it is. But maybe maybe they're going to have a fix for it. We'll see. Yeah, I'm interested to see how they engage with it. Anyway, in the meantime, like I said, I've been playing on Magic Online. Uh, shout outs to Card Hoarder for the loan accounts. They are great. Love it. I recently went back to the drawing board with Saltai Delirium, although I would just call it Saltai Midrange at this point. I cut the traverses, played only good cards, very easily 5-0 to League, returned my cards to Card Hoarder, counted you know, my treasure chest millions, and then uh, I've not played Moto since. That was about three days ago. So it's been about three days for me as well. I was just kind of cycling through a bunch of decks. I didn't really have any goals. I just wanted to get my feet back under me when it came to Pioneer. I spent a lot of time invested in Standard with the release uh, on Arena. So I just wanted to feel these new decks out. And the card hoarder was dope for it. I just cycled through each deck, played a league, had good results with like everything kind of. A bunch of three twos, four ones, uh, five or two, and... I was like, I don't know how to choose, but I guess I do know in my heart that there is a top tier very clearly being fleshed out in Pioneer. And I think it's three decks right now. I think it is Lotus Breach, Demir Inverter, and some form of Sultai. You seem to be convinced there's a lot of space to move that archetype forward. And I agree with you. I think given the rest of the top tier, the changes you're making make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. My deck is great. I, I thought it was going to be like, you know, solid, whatever. And I was just super, super happy with it. And I'm writing about it this week for Star City. If you are playing Sultai or are not necessarily interested in playing one of the two best decks, which I think are pretty clearly the combo decks, I think it is very, very easy to tune Sultai to attack the top tier while still being solid against the tier two, tier three stuff. Do you want to talk? Because we're not going to hit your actual deck list in this deck dump, right? It's not here? Uh, it's not. I think it went up, like, I finished it maybe at, like, 3 a.m., and then it went up the next day. So, like, uh, other people have been also playing it, so I don't know if, like, you know, my name is going to get posted on the next one or whatever. Oh, okay. But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, it did not get posted. I, it did get shared on Twitter, and like I said, Star City, you know, article this Friday. We'll have the deck, kind of the genesis behind it, card choices, talking about why I'm not playing Traverse, and a little bit more of an extensive matchup guide this time around. Oh, nice. So I will definitely look forward to that. But I, I would like, while you're here, though, to talk through the Traverse thing, because I think this is the thing that you get the most pushback on. But to me, your reasons seem very clear, very well thought out, and honestly, pretty obvious given the shape of the metagame. Do you want to talk through that decision real quick? So... The PT Brussels winning list had 23 land, three traverse. So obviously you're a little light on land, but traverse kind of covers you a little bit because you can always get a basic early. And then the goal of traverse is to just be utility in that you can find like a course of proof fix if you need land drops, scavenging use to, 
attack graveyards, Ishkanada, block flyers or mono red things, and then Emrakul to close the game. And basically, I think a lot of that stuff is irrelevant. And also, a lot of people have graveyard hate too, which doesn't make me super happy about having that card in uh, post-board configurations. So basically, I just looked at the things that I actually wanted to traverse for, and it's like... I don't really want any of these. Like if anything, things like Tireless Tracker, Murderous Rider, Ishkanal, I want multiples of them. I want to just naturally draw them. I want to Grizzly Salvage into them. I don't want to have to traverse and add a mana to each of them. But like Grizzly Salvage finds Uro and helps you make your land. It's it's like your ponder or whatever, you know, but also you have graveyard shenanigans going on. So I just went deeper into Grizzly Salvage, moved away from Traverse entirely, played two Ishkana, four Uro, three Tracker, two Murderous Rider, four Seder Wayfinder, two Jace, and those are my only creatures. And the Traverse targets just don't seem very good against anyone. You don't need them. Agree entirely. I, I like the way you've set this deck up. And this is probably where I hop back in when I pick up some new cards from Card Hoarder. I will just start jamming Sultai. Uh, obviously the type of deck I love to play. So I'm looking forward to it. Dude, it's really good. It is so nice. Like you, you just have so many cards that actually do things. And then your clock just draws you cards, whether it's Uro or Tireless Tracker. And then Ishkana is just basically game over against Spirits if it resolves. And it usually resolves because they only have like some disdainful strokes after board. So deck, deck is great. Uro is a good card to be a good card and i i know that's a weird thing to say but i'm very happy that it has proven to be among the most powerful cards in theros obviously there's some like combo-y stuff going on but i I think it contends for that throne but there's a real deck building cost that comes with it and that's so much better than just this is oko put it in your deck and now your deck is 10 times better you have to actually think about it and stuff like maximizing grizzly salvage because of uro seems very very cool to me I like that deck building being pushed in these directions. Yeah, Uro doesn't really seem like a standard card. Like Pioneer is just kind of the perfect format for it as Mm. far as like power level. And if you need to stretch into a third color in order to play an enabler like Grizzly Salvage while still getting like GGUU, you can definitely do that. So I think pioneer is kind of like the coolest place for it i've I've certainly been looking at like modern and legacy shells with the card just because it's sweet and then you get things like thought scour but yeah i agree i think it's a completely reasonable card to have as maybe the number one card in the set but even for things like pioneer right it's like spirits is attacking you in the air they're generally attacking you in big chunks the combo decks don't really care about it obviously it's great against mono red but it's not like it's just a slam dunk against every single archetype, right? Like it has strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, exactly where you want your power to be allocated in a magic set. Yeah, except Oko is just good against everyone, right? So you just like play four, don't really think about it. Whereas I'm I'm considering like these sideboard plans where it's like, all right, you know, do I want like two Uros here? One, does it matter if I'm on the play or the draw or whatever? And I, I think a lot of that is very, very interesting. Cool. So yeah, Sultai is good. Do not play the old lists. Like if you determine that you want to play Sultai, but you don't like my list, I highly recommend looking at things like Nissa, Traverse, the Traverse targets, and starting from scratch with what you know. 
I think that's strong advice, especially given how much Pioneer has changed over the past few weeks. Yeah, it's not the same. Uh, when this when this deck was built, it was a lot of creature decks and mid-range mirrors and stuff. Emrakul was actually good, and it, it was the end game that you wanted. A lot of those things are not true anymore. So figure out what exactly you want your deck to do. I wanted to play Tireless Tracker Fish, so I made that deck. Love it. Also considering uh, playing Grim Flayer too, which is like not a card I really like, but that one works well with Uro, but also I could see myself cutting Uro if I want to play Grim Flayer and just having more of a clock. But uh, for now, I will fully endorse the Sultai version. Okay. Grim Flayer is a card that I have wanted to be good in Pioneer for a long time. It has underwhelmed, but again, this is a different metagame. Combo is a real thing. Clocks matter. And Grim Flayer is one of the best things that Sultai can look at as far as the clock-ish plan. Obviously, you're also advancing your other game plans as well. So perfect kind of mid-range threat. I, I just feel like it's somewhat lacking on power level, which is a weird thing to say about that card, but <laughs> I could you're certainly right. see a home for it. No, you're right. I mean, I, I was thinking about it in terms of like, oh, maybe I could play Stubborn Denial with Uro and Tracker and it. And then I was like, well, wait, what if I just play green black? And then I looked at Willie Adel's deck from the PT and he went four and six and had had like way more threats. I would want more interaction because you need more interaction against the combo decks. But, you know, I mean, like something there can be successful for sure. Okay. Look forward to exploring that. Yeah. And then I would say Band Spirits, Mono Red, maybe Blue White Control are the next layer of the format. I uh, would also have Mono White Devotion in that list, which has picked up recently. I have some thoughts on how that deck is being built, but we'll have a chance to talk about that because that will certainly appear in this deck dump. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm interested to hear that too because that's not a deck I've actually played against a lot. It doesn't seem like the proliferation is there quite yet. Okay. Yeah, we are going to get into the deck dump. You ready for this? Let's do it. And this is the 217 Pioneer League that we're looking at today, just so if folks want to follow along. What's the shortcut where you can get right to the deck list? I always forget it. I don't know. I just type in mtgo.com and on my phone, it <laughs> takes me to uh, hyperlink. But I think it's mtgo.com and then there's a deck list link. Double checking that as well. If you type mtgo.com. In the middle, there's a thing that says deck list. You click yeah. on that and then you get to the list that are populated with new stuff every day. There you go. And everyone should have that bookmarked. You should be looking at deck lists every single day if you care about your performance in Magic the Gathering. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, th I think they go up at like 9 a.m. Pacific every day, but you'll you'll figure that out just by using it and going to the site a decent amount. Perfect. Let's talk these actual decks that we have in front of us. Wakasama. These are all 5-0 decks. Uh, Mono Red Aggro. I like this deck. It has changed a lot. Uh, I think the the Glorybringer version was very popular for a little bit. And then it was like, okay, we need to tone it down, play more prowess things, play Torbrand, not play five drops. This deck is kind of a mix of the two where mm. there are Soul Scar Mages, uh, no Swift Spears, but a little bit lower to the ground, but also has Glorybringer and Embercleave. So... I guess closer to the bigger red decks, but I don't know with, with inverter and Lotus breach being the top decks. Like I just, I want to play an idol on the great rebel deck, you know? 
Yep. Do not like this deck list right now. Uh, four glory bringers here, 26 land. I, I just don't see that as a path to victory against the rest of the top tier. Like maybe it's fine against mono white devotion, mono black. I, I'm sure your matchups there are good. But if you agree that Demir Inverter, Lotus Breach occupy slots one and two, it's really hard for me to talk myself into a mono red list that looks like this. I'm looking at the more aggressive list if I'm looking to play mono red. And Goblin Chain Whirler, who is that good against? Well, we're down to two copies at least. <laughs> so the numbers have decreased on Goblin I, Chain Whirler. I but... know, but still. I mean, it's good with Torbrand. Yeah, sort of, kind of. I, get, I mean, it's, I, it's just I, never good. I guess it's kind of good against Spirits, sort of. But you should mostly smush them anyway. I, I don't even think you need Chain Whirler. I would rather just play like Ferocidon. Sure. You, you have to be able to beat the two best decks in Pioneer right now. This does not. So it, it's off my list. I will say, though, despite the fact that I definitely believe Lotus Breach to be in the top tier, it's not showing up in like the preliminaries, in the PTQs. It's just absent. And I don't really understand that. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know. It's narrow. It's hard to play. Also, it, it certainly gets worse the more hate exists. And I think a lot of people are playing Damping Spheres and stuff like that. Like People are starting to respect it. Yeah, it, it didn't show up in the GP immediately following the PT either, where it had one of the most dominant performances we've seen from a deck in a very long time, just an absolutely absurd win rate, and then doesn't convert a single top eight slot in the next day's GP. So, Well, all, I, the, I, all the people who were playing it were probably winning in the PT. That is true, but I know a lot of people who were trying to get copies, they were frantically Twittering, trying to get the deck in their hands. I don't know how many actually succeeded. This seemed like some pretty hard cards to track down. Uh, but I do wonder, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the possibility that the narrative of these are the two best decks, maybe it's already outdated. Maybe there have been enough adjustments from these other decks to push Breach down a tier. I don't know if I believe that because it just seems inherently more powerful than other things you could be doing and can adapt to most of the, the sideboard hate you might see. But I do want to keep that possibility on my radar and I'm going to continue to update my assumptions about just how good that deck is. Yeah, maybe you try and find a thing that is, or a version that's good against the hate. So you just play more anti-hate stuff that's just not a, a bad magic card, really. I think of like the Martin Mueller Jeskai version from mm. Brussels, where okay. maybe that's a better angle to go now. I mean, very similar to like how I think Saltai had to adapt. I think the, the Breach decks probably have to adapt now too. Before it was like, well, you want pour over the pages in just like a high density of action, right? Because you're very good at Sylvan scrying for your combo and everything. But now maybe you don't like you're still going to have to fight through a bunch of thought seizes and stuff. But now maybe it's more important to be able to kill a damping sphere than it is to just have a high density of card drawing. Yeah, makes sense. K Thanakit 26, Simic Ramp. Uh, this is just mono green ramp with some Uros. Like Uro does ramp you, and there are Seder Wayfinders in this deck now, but is Worldbreaker and maybe like an Ulamog, some Ugins, is that like an actual good endgame? Because I caught the Emrakul because that sort of thing was mostly irrelevant. Doesn't feel like enough to me. I will point out the mana base here, though. Three Ipnu Rivulets that actually can be challenging to play against on the Inverter side if you haven't accounted for the possibility of this card. And I think... At first, some inverter players were having a hard time accounting for this, but now secrets out, you know, this is something these decks can do and you will plan for it. 
I, again, think this does a very good job of beating up on tier two, but is just playing a little bit soft to tier one right now. And I think the format's really getting squeezed down. And I am hesitant to go down a route where I can't beat those top two decks. Yeah, against Rivulet, just set up your combo for the same turn. It's not that hard. Yep. Especially a deck like Ramp that's super slow. Yeah, that's the other thing. Is like Rivulet can be very meaningful against a clock. If you just have time to do what you need to do, you'll find it. Next deck, SD uh, Kayo. Blue White Spirits. No collected company. Not sure how I feel about that. This list instead just has uh, four copies of Curious Obsession and a Rally of Wings. No Reflector Mage. No extra counter magic. No like dive down to protect your Curious Obsession thing. I'm not sure how much I like this. Well, so I haven't played with this particular list, so I'm reserving judgment somewhat. But I will say it is reflective of an idea we talked about where you just need to get as linear as possible. The problem is now you're trying to be super linear when there is a real combo deck in the format and they are just faster at doing what you have to do. And your disruption is actually pretty slim here. You have Spell Queller, you have Mausoleum Wanderer, and that's it. Nothing else going on. Now you'll find a lot of them and Curious Obsession enables you to routinely hit those cards. Does it do a better job than Collected Company? Not sure. Really not. So I am interested in Curious Obsession as a magic card in Pioneer. I've actually turned to it in a few other spots recently because I do think it enables some fish-like games to be played very well against those like breach decks. And maybe maybe in post-board configurations, this deck can really shine. I like the idea of Curious Obsession on a one-drop and then you just have all the disruption you need for the rest of the game. Yeah, so I, I like could, that too. I could buy that as a reason to go this route. Yeah. Uh, the next deck is definitely a Curious Obsession deck. This is from Matsugin the Master boggles except it's banned with curious obsession and staggering insights the creatures are glade cover scout basara tower archer and he has a lot of hate for combo in the form of unsubstantiate and failure to comply first of all i knew you were going to love this list as soon as i saw the deck well it's matsugan name, it's matsugan right? yeah huge matsugan fan okay so Something like this versus the other linear hexproof decks, the appeal is obviously the disruption, right? Is is it enough to make a difference in matchups, or are you still just playing from too far behind? I mean, man, there are a lot of curious obsessions in this deck. You should just be able to find these pieces routinely. Yeah, uh, obviously you have to find a creature, and things like Basara Tower Archer against Goblin Chain Whirler, if Mono Red is still a big part of the format, even though... Mm, see, yikes. You know, yeah, it's 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 kind of awkward. I feel like this is a deck that is maybe a, a dog to aggro and to combo, just like anything that is like very fast. But certainly, unless you get thought seized on turn one against something like Inverter, like they need to combo you very quickly because they don't have the tools to actually interact with you. There are so many cards in this deck that I have to read. Like, where does Matsugan even find these cards? How is this possible to have failure to comply, unsubstantiate, long road home, uh, stern dismissal? Like, there's just ludicrous, ludicrous cards in this deck. He's gas, man. Can't dispute that. Yeah, the master. Uh, I saw, I think he went like 3-2 in uh, a challenge too. So like, kind of, kind of some mixed results with this one. I don't want to, you know, give this like, 10 thumbs up or anything, but I do think that this is 
one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, we kind of forgot that this was a thing that we could do. I wonder if we can bring it back. If we wanted to bring it back, would it actually be good? Are there interesting ways that we can innovate on this to make it good? And I don't think that this is really the right way to do it because the clock is so slow. And I think that that's really important right now. But mm-hmm. it does mean that there's there's a lot of stuff hiding under the surface. Yeah. And this is what it looks like when you have clear targets, right? You can start making some very pointed decisions as you try and account for these strategies. And uh, this is what a format looks like when you don't know when the next ban is coming. And we spent early Pioneer just being like, well, this deck will probably go away. Now you got to go deep and you got to figure out how you're going to account for these really powerful things these decks are doing. Yep. Next list, Benny Hills. Uh, Zori's Control, very heavily centered on Planeswalkers for getting into the Trials. Awesome card right now. Uh, very, very good against both combo decks. Also just a fine card in general. Two Gideon Allies of Zendikar, one Jace Architect of Thought, one Narset, another solid card. Three Big Teferi, four Little Teferi, uh, Brazen Borrower, four Supreme Verdict, pretty good card. Azorius Charm Sensor, two Dovin Veto, four Cast Out. That's a lot of those. 26 land, a lot of utility lands. So yeah, mostly Planeswalker, Tap Out Control, leaning a lot on Gideon, to do work against the combo decks because you don't have a ton of disruption. One of the things I wrote about in my article this week, I talked mostly about various Azorius decks and I had a lot of complaints about Azorius control. The biggest problem being you got to close games. You, you just can't sit back anymore. And all these hate cards, things like rest in peace, things like the damping spheres, they're fine to buy you time. They don't win the game on their own. You have to be able to close out. And my adaptation was to move blue white into a more mid range posture, similar to what like Martin Mueller was doing very early on in the format with his Azorius mid range decks. Now those decks have lost smugglers copter, but also when you are just consenting to Gideon of the trials being a good magic card, you get to go back towards heart of Kieran again. And you have a bunch of three mana planeswalkers that can enable that card. And I like that. I, I had very clean blue white fish like builds that just had turn five kills that were only based on playing a Gideon plus heart of Kieran. And then somewhere along the line, you get one more crew and you've just won the game with those two cards. So picking up those kind of clocks, I think is a really big deal. Here's another way to do it. This seems fine. The important lesson to take away though, end your games, even if you're playing something quote unquote controlling like blue white. Yep. A alien O2 spelled oddly. Green, black, stompy, lot of four and five power monsters, some collected companies, some great hinges, one heart of Kieran. The review from players who tried this deck was not very good. What were the complaints based on? I, I can imagine where their issues lied. I think it was just like you, you play some creatures and then you kind of just lose because mm-hmm. what you're doing doesn't really line up well strategically against what a lot of other people are doing. So, you know, Saltai will be very good at killing your things that matter and then stabilizing right. behind Uro and stuff like that. And then Blue White Control has a bunch of Supreme Verdicts and the combo decks just kind of get you dead. So what are we doing here? It's a hard time to invest a lot of setup in one big threat. Because I think there is like efficient spot removal. You mentioned Uro. You can trade pretty effectively there. So I'm not really into the idea of just getting a Galta onto the battlefield. 
I mean, I, I probably never will be, quite frankly. Like, this is just not going to be the deck for me. So maybe you can just disregard my opinion on this matter, but not impressed by anything I see here. Uh, no disruption, just hoping your clock is good enough. I don't think that's a winning strategy in Pioneer right now. Yeah, me either. Uh, the creatures are big. I would rather have things like spirits where the creatures are versatile disruptive. and disruptive. Yeah. Right. I agree well, with you. If you didn't like the last deck, you're going to love this one. Airborne 17th, <laughs> Mono Green Aggro. This one at least has Aspect of Hydra to close quicker, which... And Burning like. Tree Emissary. Like, this deck gets a little bit wider, which I think is beneficial as opposed to just having one meaningful threat. You can just make a broad battlefield. And that's one of the things that the smaller versions of Mono Red did really well and why they had, like, a pretty okay PT season. It certainly wasn't dominant, but it was an, a respectable choice, a top eight appearance in the hands of Zachary Keeney. So it did fine. Yeah, th- I like this list better than the first one, but still very similar complaints. Serac the Hunt Caller, also a hit. Hoshep Oasis, some Nykthosis. Yeah, this, this deck could be explosive and have a very fast clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, Underworld Breach, LSV. Never heard of them. Yeah, trying to see if this this new player has anything to offer us in terms of technology here in this Underworld Breach list. I, this is just not a deck that really needs a ton of technology. Let's see. We have to go over this sideboard pretty carefully and see if there's anything worth paying attention to. Not really. I mean, just like only the one thought distortion. A lot of people were playing multiple copies of that for things like blue-white control, but as you noted... If you go Gideon of the Trials plus some other stuff, don't lean super hard on counter spells, then you're in a much better spot. Yeah, I think this is a card that certainly had a moment. Uh, it may have other moments. It maybe is due for a moment in standard if we can find a decent black deck to prop it up. But in Pioneer, it's diminishing a little bit. Not quite what it was a few weeks ago. Yep. Zippiest Bard, another 5-0, uh, Mono White, Splashing Collected Company, doing Heliod things. I, I've played against some versions of this. Uh, th- the most recent one I played against was White Black, so that one was like a little bit easier. And it was like, th- they'll have a Ballista on two or something, and I just always have to respect that I could just die on the next turn. And yeah. I think that is a pretty good place to be, so... This is a beatdown deck with some card advantage and threatens a combo kill against, you know, decks like Lotus Breach that can't really interact with it. So I think this is a fine place to be in the format. Yeah, one of the real pickups for this version of, I'm going to call this Mono White. I understand it's got collected companies, but I'm speaking to like the Nykthos engine as well as this combo kill. I like the move towards Benelish Marshall as opposed to something like Arcanist Owl. Now, granted, there's other incentives here. Collective co- collecting companies pushing you towards three drops. But in my eyes, Arcanist Owl is actually a card that improves dramatically in post-board games where you have a bunch of enchantments and artifacts that are more impactful when you know your matchups. And it's weird to me that it started as just like the default four of in these mono-white devotion decks because I think you can't realistically win those mid-range style games against Lotus Breach, against Inverter. Like they they just, if they get the time, they will do the requisite setup and eventually grind you out or just combo over you. On the other hand, if you are a Benelish Marshall white deck with the same combo built in, I do think you can just clock and kill them. If their draw is at all awkward, sometimes you will just run over them. Yeah. Uh, you can get wide in some instances. So 
my present list of mono white devotion actually down to two owls in the main and four Benelish Marshall. And it's still enabling your Nykthos. So you get that mana boost you may be looking for. And then in post board, I keep my additional owls there and then they can find me my rest in peace, my damping spheres, my disruptive elements. And then I can realistically play those more mid range games because at that point you can't rely on your beatdown plan because they've made adjustments in the form of more spot removal, just accounting for your plan a little bit better. So I like playing this kind of juke game, forcing them to account for exactly what plan you're going to be doing at the moment. And I think it's kind of misassigned its roles thus far in the Pioneer format. I think it's supposed to be more aggressive in game ones and then go more mid-range as you get to games two and three. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I will note that the Arcanist Owl ones were built in a format that didn't necessarily have these combo decks, you know? So like moving over to Thalys, Lieutenant, Benelish, Marshall makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I actually like these decks. I'm going to have to try this. They are, they are worth a try. And like I said, I don't think they're completely sussed out yet. So there is room for innovation. Just doing something as simple as getting a little bit more aggressive can really yield some dividends. Halfy 44, Sultai Inverter. This is kind of a mix between the mid-range and the combo decks. Uh, you're still trying to assemble the combo. You have like four Inverter, three Thassa's Oracle, three Jace, some Grizzly Salvages, but you have a maybe better backup plan in like Seder Wayfinder into Uro. I haven't really liked these decks very much. I feel like the Demir decks still do a pretty good job of this. And this just strikes me as a thing that is kind of doing both things poorly. Talk about why you're not interested in expanding to a third color here. Is it just because you feel original inverter has the tools? Like there's nothing you're not accounting for presently with that deck? Well, initially I thought that I wanted to build a combo control deck and have the combo pieces matter less and then have people side and hate against me. And the more I played with and against Inverter, the more I realized that you should just play all the combo pieces and just continually be threatening the combo. And you you don't really have the tools to play the control game. This one is trying to play more of like a mid-range game. But I also think that there's a lot of problems that arise when you're trying to do inverter stuff with like Seder Wayfinder and Grizzly Salvage, where you just have like this massive graveyard that you need to kind of like build back up or go through to win with Jace and stuff like that. So if, if I have the inverter combo right in my deck and I decide that I'm pretty sure that this is how I'm supposed to be winning the vast majority of my games, which I do think is correct, then what would I rather have as uh, supplemental pieces? Is it like Uros and Seder Wayfinders or is it just more interaction, just like more thought erasures, things that like slow my opponent down rather than just spin my wheels a little bit? And I, I think it's not close. It's the interaction, right? Yeah, I've been particularly impressed with Narset out of these uh, Demir lists. I think that was a pretty big step forward. And sure, pl- plenty of things that I would pick up before I went down this route of adding a third color. Yeah, I was I was all about like two Oracle, maybe three Jace. Now I'm just like four Jace for sure. Jam. Probably probably four Oracle. And just just do the combo thing. Don't don't try and plan B it because you don't need to. Word. Bavanko, more Basara Tower Archers. This one is just green white with some Adanto Vanguards. Season of Growth, Sentinel's Eyes, Unflinching Courage. Like, 
I, I feel like this deck is going to be very good against Spirits, Mono Red, stuff like that. But again, is maybe going to struggle with the combo decks because it's just a little bit too slow to get going. Yep, my read as well can beat up on those creature decks pretty hard, though. So if meta shifts back in that direction, I would keep an eye on this one because I don't, I mean, you're not beating this as Mono Red. Yep. Pack it in. Zeth 4, Gruul, Possibility Storm, you know, Gruul, mid rangey type stuff with some adventure creatures and then a combo kill with Possibility Storm. It's like, cute but i think is worse than white devotion you know you're, you're trying to do like this clock thing and have a combo finish but the devotion deck is just so compact right like mm. you don't feel bad when you draw a possibility storm or shared summons or enter the infinite or whatever because all of your combo cards in the white deck are just good yeah it does it with a lot less fat i think is the way i would put it and yeah. there certainly are some clunky draws here so this deck is fine but I think it's probably invalidated by better versions of the same thing. Cube 87, Mono Black Vampires. I mean, this this deck did get a PT Top 8. It might be better than Mono Black Aggro at the moment because you're doing slightly more powerful things. And the things that you are doing, like Soren into Champion of Dusk, actually help you grind against Inverter, whereas Inverter has a lot of ways to just brick your little two one creatures and hmm. slow your clock down and stuff like that. So I think that this might actually be better than mono black right now. Although with like the Kalidas's main deck and stuff like that, I don't think I would go that route. I would still try and be a little bit more aggressive. Sure. You're looking for as much clock as possible in the face of something like Lotus breach. Also like dusk Legion zealot is not the most impressive attacker, obviously. So there's, there's a lot of grind here, maybe a little bit more aggression, would be worth a bit more i don't know if the options are there or not though yeah like vicious conquistador is probably what i would just be looking at instead of something like kalidus or playing more disruption in the form of drill bit or something like that but certainly like damping sphere ley line uh whatever cranial extraction type thing you want to use uh you have a bunch of disruption that you can play out of the board which helps you just have to make it so your main deck is reasonable against them word Dark One, YX, White Black, Rally Zombies. This deck started popping up a couple months ago. Has honestly been doing pretty well. Looks kind of tight. Emma Handy was a firm believer in this deck for a while, but the format's kind of passed it by. Again, creature combo deck, but you're playing, you know, like Foulmire Knight and Dread Wanderer, and the white deck is just all good cards. Yeah, also there's the focus on graveyards presently. You know, we just saw Leyline of the Void. We've seen Rest in Peace all over the place. And taking away that aspect of this deck, it, it's tough. You still have a beatdown plan, but I think you are more reliant on comboing off than you would at first at first expect. So again, just doesn't feel like the right time for this deck, although I do like the archetype. Yeah. Brain Cicator, white, black, mid-range. Uh, these these decks are tight. I love the look of these decks. I'm just going to read this one because it's kind of weird. Uh, sure. 20, 24 assorted white, black lands in some Vaults. Five Gideons. Two of them are Trials. Three are Ally of Zendikar, an Archangel Avacyn. Four, Knight of the Ebon Legion. Two, Knight of the White Orchid. Just very awkward mana base, but... Yeah. Uh, four Scrap Heaps Grounder. Two, Thalia, Heretic, Cathar. That card is bomb right now. Fourth Raven Inspector, an Agonizing Remorse, Fourth Thoughtseize, Anguished Unmaking, Four Fatal Push, Four History of Benalia. Uh, this deck could potentially make good use out of uh, Heart of Kieran. Also, obviously, Smuggler's Copter is the exact perfect card for this deck, but we don't we don't get to have nice things. 
Yeah, that card is long gone. So again, another mix of slight disruptive elements in the form of Thoughtseize plus Agonizing Remorse and trying to put together as quick a clock as possible. Your point about Thalia is a good one. I have seen such a small amount of this card. It does seem promising when you're just trying to find that one more attack, that slightly larger window to jam through some aggression. Uh, Thalia does a nice job of setting that up. Oops, all Gideon's. Gideon the Trials, Gideon Ally of Zendikar. Uh, I am surprised to see Heart of Kirin passed on here, but I don't know. I mean, these Knight of the White Orchids seem very speculative to me. I, If I was just making off-the-cuff changes to this deck, it would probably be removing that card and getting some Heart of Kirins in here to try it out. But uh, I will give Brain Cicator benefit of the doubt, assume they thought about this, and just feel the Knight of the White Orchid is necessary for some endgame setups. It's just... For Mutavault, for Knight of the White Orchid, Swamp, Orborg, I am concerned. I mean, you have you have 12 white-black duels that ETB untapped, so trying to go Knight of the Ebon Legion into White Orchid is not that bad. And also, I don't know if this actually helps or not, but like you don't have to Knight of the White Orchid on turn two. You know, like you do have some time, but obviously if you have to develop with Mutavault or Swamp in the meantime, it makes it less likely that you're going to be able to trigger that thing, but... Sure, and I guess also the most likely time to play Knight of the White Orchid is not on turn two. You anticipate you will set it up later on. Yeah, but you still need to have like white-white in play in order to make that a reality, so. Yes. I I like Heart of Kirin. I think that there are a lot of good synergies like the Gideon, Scrap Heap, Scrounger, Thalia, but it does not play very well with History of Benalia and... Uh, the one drops that are here, but honestly, I would be completely fine looking at like Toolcraft Exemplar. Yeah, I was just thinking that. What if we went back to like a, a more white black tool, Toolcraft Exemplar? Is Thraven Inspector still safe? Just really close to what the Mardu vehicle setups used to look like as far as our creature base. Yeah, and I would just jam for getting into the trials and keep some allies and the cars too, but like trials okay. seems very, very good. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I am making a note of this because this actually sounds pretty promising to me with the way the format is presently set up. Yeah, I still think I would rather be doing Heliod things, but I don't know. I think there's a case to work on either white black or blue white or, you know, some sort of uh, white Heliod deck. Because these, these cards all seem reasonable right now. Like the clock is good. The disruption's good. You get like getting in the trials, being proactive and also stopping you from dying is very nice. Yeah. Thoughtseize is a big draw to black. It's worth at least exploring as far as blue white. One of the cards that I wrote about this weekend, it was entirely ripped off from Michael Jacob, but I gave him credit. Lavinia, which is a card that like nobody thinks about, hasn't seen play in a long time, but actually lines up well against a a bunch of stuff that's going on in the format right now. So it's got a little bit of an anemic body. It's got the legendary claws, so it's hard to really load up on it. But I like the way my list look with a couple of Lavinia slotted in there. Yeah, me too. Next up, we have Mana Sizer. Nim Mizzet Reborn, uh, another good example of a deck being good two weeks ago. People needed to make adaptations. They did. You see a lot of thought seizes popping up in these lists. Fewer... Uh, just like pure mana acceleration or defensive cards, like no more siege rhinos and just more disruption in general. Although 28 land for Thoughtseize is that's that's just like a lot of air in the mid to late game. So you are really leaning on Niv Mizzet to do very wonderful things for you. But since you have 28 land, there's also like not a ton of hits. But 
Yeah, but uh, also a lot of these cards don't matter too. Like that's the biggest part about leaning on Niv-Mizzet is a lot of these cards just feel small ball at this point. Yeah, so I don't know if this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, I feel like Thoughtseize Uro is just good enough on its own at this point and kind of similar to me cutting Emrakul, you don't necessarily need Bring Delight into Niv-Mizzet, like draw four cards, so. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Another yeah. card that could speed up by Lavinia, by the way, Bring Delight. There's a lot of them. <laughs> they keep popping up. Uh, Thawmore, old time MTGO grinder, respect. White, Heliod, splashing some blue for six to fairies, some Ojutai's commands, some spell quellers, cool stuff in the sideboard like uh, Jace's defeat, a race, glare of heresy. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, this is kind of like the setup I was talking about, but I went in a more disruptive direction. This is a more Heliod focus direction, which I honestly didn't consider all that carefully. So uh, I like some of the stuff that's going on here. Some of the cards seem a little discordant, like having Teferi in this list is strange to me. I, I get it. It's a powerful card, but it seems like we could focus more on having multiple viable routes to victory. So like a beatdown plan plus this Heliod plan plus a little disruption makes sense to me. And it goes well with a setup like Ojatai's command, rebuying meaningful two drops that can actually put a clock on an opponent could be really good. So that's the direction I would take this, but it's a cool setup and it's obviously contemplative of where the format is at presently. Right. Teferi, I don't mind when you have the combo kill because eventually you can assemble that against someone. So like against Zoltai or Azorius you're really going to want something that allows you to grind. So if you decide that like blue is worth it, it kind of makes sense to me to play Teferi at the top end. Like against a lot of decks, you know, mono red, it's like, well, you have 58 cards that do something and this Teferi is probably going to be very too slow, but against the mid range decks, he's kind of reporting, which I'm fine with. Okay. Uh, Manuel da- Daninger, mono white aggro, brave the elements, no combo, no messing around, just 19 white making lands and a bunch of one drops. Again, I think going wide makes sense. Given the way decks are set up right now, I would never register this for a tournament. That's probably a flaw on my end, but I get the incentive to build a deck like this right now. And I bet a lot of decks just get completely rolled by it as evidenced by this 5 Yeah, play one way. Uh, deafening silence in the sideboard, which I've seen popping up in a few places too. Me too. What do you think about that versus Damping Sphere? Because I, I have played decks that could legitimately do both, and I was still going with Damping Sphere, but I wasn't doing so with a high degree of confidence. Silence seems more impactful and like easier to slip into play too. Like obviously this sort of deck, like you don't want to have to spend two mana on like turn three, turn four, but it's pretty easy to play like a creature or two and then a silence. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And the Lotus deck can like kind of get around the tax and like still play multiple spells. Like obviously they're not going to be able to go completely off, but the silence is definitely going to stop them from, you know, playing a pour over the pages untapping some Lotus fields, finding the thing that removes your dampening sphere and like going off from there. Like the, the silence just kind of like locks them out. Yeah. You're making a good case for this being the preferable option. Once you have access to white mana. Yep. Uh, Heath at UK, Sultai midrange, pretty normal, two Nissa, one Liliana, three Traverse. Like, this is this is just the list that everyone's playing. Uh, some Ley Lines in the sideboard on Mordigo, Sultai Charm, Hostage Taker, etc. This is what we in the business call stock. Yes. I'm just going to do Awful. that from now on. Just say stock. Moving stock, on. Stock, next. Next, Japanese Fisherman, 26 land, 
Nimbusit Reborn, two Shifting Ceratops, two Deathrite Shaman, Thought Erasure instead of Thoughtseize, kind of down with that. And then mixing up the tutor targets for Bring Delight. We haven't entered the God Eternals, an Hour of Devastation, like the Unmoored Ego main deck still. I mean, if you're if you're gonna play Bring Delight, might as well do that. Yeah, you you need that to be good enough because that is your plan against a certain deck, which is a very high percentage of the metagame. So if that doesn't matter, I don't know what else you're supposed to do. How do you feel on the Sultai side of things playing against these Niv decks? Uh, it feels pretty bad, honestly. Yeah. Like, I mean, they, that's that's where I see this deck standing right now. That's about its last good matchup in the top tier. Yeah, so if they get to do their thing, obviously you're at a huge disadvantage, right? I mean, Teferi is very good against your plan of just having singular threats. Like you play a Jace or a Tracker or whatever, and they just bounce it. And then you have things like Mystical Dispute or Negate that you're trying to use to stop their five mana cards, and Teferi shuts it down. So I think my plan is arguably better like you could make a case for traverse into emrakul being stronger against them but they know to go after the emrakul so i would i would just rather have like tireless tracker plus disruption and try and win the game that way because winning a long game against them is not really viable they're just going to bury you right next up we have christian keith with almost certainly the spiciest deck in this deck dump and uh, a deck that i've tried to make various versions of this is simic delirium so we have some Seder wayfinders some vessel of nascencies those set up uro for emrakul the promised end not messing around uh some brazen borrowers tamio collector of tales gather the pack traverse grow spiral 25 land forecastle garen briggs again we see the ipni rivulus just kind of chilling in the mana base and crawl harpooners in the sideboard. I like this deck. I think it's sweet. I also, like I said, don't think that the Emrakul endgame is all that good. Yeah, and that's what this deck is, right? It's turbo Emrakul. So if you are in a format where that is among the best things you can be doing, which there are many Emrakul formats. We certainly saw one in Standard when the card was legal. It was by far the best thing to be doing to the extent it had to be banned. So if Pioneer shifts back in that direction... This is definitely the most efficient way you can go about that game plan. This deck will cast Emrakul's often and early. Yeah. Uh, next up, Aaron Barich. Guess what she's playing? Monored. Good call. Nailed oh. it. But look how wide this deck goes. Yeah. Actually, this is more this is more of a goblin deck. This is goblins. This is 21 okay. land, four Embercleave, four Dragon Fodder, 31 creatures that I believe are all goblins, which would make sense because there are yep. goblin pile drivers and goblin rabble masters that can very easily pick up that Embercleave. This is cool. I mean, this goes really wide. Obviously, the aggression is there. And I don't think, again, much like the mono white deck, much like the smaller mono red decks, a lot of decks just not set up to deal with this presently and are going to get run over. I would, I would never register it under any circumstances, but I, I believe in it. I was going to say, I would happily register this over Mono White. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you if you force me to choose one of those two decks, I would probably lean in this direction. Yeah. Sideboard has some removal spells, some some bigger threats. Alpine Moon, Damping Sphere, Carrie Zev's Expertise. I think those three are all very powerful and efficient hate cards in this format. So Some reliable Ember Cleaves here. These are going to be coming down early and possibly getting on some very large creatures. Goblin Pile Driver picking up Ember Cleave. Some wild stuff. Yeah, that, that's a KO. Uh, even like Foundry Street Denizen, too. I could see that happening. Sure. Max Capone with just blue-white, I guess, but a weird one. Uh, A-Planeswalkers, 
Uh, some some vetoes, some sinister sabotages, a couple censors, dig through time. And then Elspeth Conquers Death, Birth of Miletus, Soul Guide Lantern in small numbers. So a little different. No Gideon in the Trials either. Yeah, that's a weirder exclusion. I do like Soul Guide Lantern. I think that's a card that more of these decks should probably pick up given the shape of the format. But you, you can't let games stretch on into perpetuity. You will be punished eventually. And this deck, just Elspeth as a way to end the game. So it's not passing my test right now. Um, this isn't how I want to set up my blue-white deck presently. But again, we can get back to a place where this is viable. Next up, we have Zini, Spirits, Collected Company, One Teferi. However, this one has uh, five mana elves for acceleration. I kind of like that. It's a weird wrinkle I have not seen before. And I'm thinking, I, I've played a few leagues with Spirits. I actually like this deck quite a bit, despite the fact that it has Collected Company in it. I know that's oh, hard yeah. to believe. Oh, but yeah. I have successfully cast Collected Companies the few times I've played Spirits thus far. So I'm not angry at the card right now. Um, and I'm trying to think of situations where like, I was just pl- always playing a turn behind and that felt impactful and they're not really coming to me. I, I think like your tools line up pretty well and maybe this minimizes mulligans and I could see that being a big deal when a Thoughtseize deck is very good. Uh, you're just able to keep more land light hands and the deck is low on land certainly. And also you are very incentivized to have a one drop your hands without mausoleum wanderer are very different from the ones with so i'm interested i would look into this but it doesn't immediately strike me as something that the deck was really missing and i just want to do a source check as well because i feel like i'm not gonna like what i see there uh 13 sources turn one green mana that's not bad for five it's all right yeah. i mean i i don't like 12 sources for white but i feel like that's just what a lot of these decks are going to look like yeah that's definitely a squeeze point I don't know. I I would take a look at a setup like this, but it it hasn't been a problem that I've really felt. And I've liked the Spirits deck. I think it is a good response to the top tier. I do think it has some flaws as you get to tier two, tier three, which you would expect of a deck that's really hard targeting what you see as the best decks. Uh, Next deck is from Chagzalot, Mono White Nykthos, uh, different version this is kind of what you were talking about earlier with the four copies of Arcanist Owl, Elspeth Conquers Death, a lot of stasis snares. So just like the the bigger devotion variant, not a fan. I think that you can lower the curve a bit, get a little bit more aggressive. Uh, we're we're kind of just restating, you know, similar things, but it really is true. It is just the case. Yeah, I, I think 20 hits, if my quick count is correct, for Arcanist Owl, which just feels unfortunately low to me. And uh, I, I want that number to go up a little bit before I'm really banking on this as part of my strategy. And I already said my piece, like you said, I'd rather play this deck more aggressively. Beaker 07, mono red with a Tarka's Command. Uh, the mana is not great, but... If you determine that you like playing a bunch of one drops and then pumping your one drops, I think this is a fine thing to attempt to do. The burn spells are solid in that, like, once you play Gitu Lava Runner and stuff, you get to enable Wizard's Lightning, which is cool, but definitely has some issues. First issue I have is that we're playing six shocks in a format as powerful as Pioneer. Like, 
I, I don't know if you get me to sign up for that. I only recently have come to see shock as standard acceptable. And now you're asking me to buy into six shocks and pioneers. So don't love that. If I want to do this thing, I, I think Aaron's deck does this better. Get wide, do a bunch of damage real quick. And instead of trying to feel like you have agency, just be like, format's not prepared for this. I'm all in on these little creatures. Let's see what they can do. Yeah. I don't mind shock and you certainly need a lot of cheap spells to enable prowess, but I do think that these decks could play just like two copies of crash through and be fine. Okay. Uh, next up blood Smurf blue white control with four copies of myth realized hate it card. I've always hated has never done anything, but I know a lot of people love this card. Alex Stratton, my dearly departed friend love myth realized. So I always get excited when I see this card. I think of him, but, uh, it's never been a good card, unfortunately. So perhaps we're trying, but I don't buy this one. Yeah, I, I like the fact that it is a clock and there's things like Lazatep plating to help protect it. Uh, this deck also has two copies of Whirlwind Denial, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, so I I like the attempt. I just don't think that that's necessarily what you want. Yeah, the Gideon setup we saw earlier on in the deck dump was a little bit more appealing to me. Mountain Master 13 is a giant liar because they're not yeah, playing what any, is this? any mountains whatsoever. Uh, this is Simic, Big Stuff, Eldrazi, Stubborn Denial, uh, with a light splash of Seder Wayfinder to enable Uro. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking here, this deck was a big part of the format early on when the format was more powerful. So why can it not be again? is the question I have. And Stubborn Denial to interact with Lotus Breach seems very reasonable. And you have a nice little clock here. Thonopsir is good. That's a card that we haven't seen much of. And I do think probably deserves more respect in the context yeah. of this format. Yeah, there's there's a little ability to grind with your own Uros against something like Demir Inverter. Uh, I see three Ipnu Rivulets that you want to be playing this card anyway because you want access to the colorless mana. So actually, pretty big fan of this deck. Yeah, I... It only has the stubborn denials really for interaction. I mean, you could make the case for the two copies of Blast Zone, but I also kind of hate the Blast Zones with Uro. But I could get behind something like this. Yeah, and you can pick up more disruption in the sideboard. You see the four Mystical Dispute, three Disdainful Strokes, so certainly more options there. Even more Clock if you want it as well. Something like Vivian come down and enable you to do some removal, uh, trample over some opponents. So... Uh, I did not expect to like this deck coming into this, but the more I thought about it, the more it kind of revealed itself to me. Seems pretty reasonable. All right, I'm going to put this on the docket. Heart of Kirin and Thought Not Seer are two cards that I should be building around. Agreed. Next deck, Sam Brand 414. Uh, Mono Red with Eldrazi Obligator, Thought Not Seer in the sideboard. Uh, how close is this to Ben White's list? Because I never got to look at the, the actual GP deck list. Let's see how close we are. Ben's list for Bone Crusher, three Eldrazi Obligator, three Carries Ev, four Swift Spear, four Ferocidon, four Soul Scar Mage, four Torbrand, one Zergo, four Lightning Strike, four Wild Slash, one Satyr's Cunning. Don't leave home without it. Yeah, four so they forge. cut that for a Zergo. That makes sense. Four Forge, 12 Mountain, Muta Vaults, Ramanap Ruins. Yep, same deck. Endo 19, Mono Black Aggro. Kind of like it. This one has uh, Graveyard Marshal and Mogus's Marauder. And that just makes a decent amount of sense to me because Scrap Heap Scrounger, like no one, no one's really killing that thing. You know, you're not grinding against a lot of people. People do have Uro to block though. And uh, Mogus's Marauder is fine against that. Okay. 
Yeah, this is an expensive way to go about this problem. Three mana, two twos, I wouldn't expect to be pioneer level. But if you're very sure this is the card you are concerned about and the card you need help beating, I understand going that route. And like you said, I, Graveyard Marshal was a card that I was so high on when it was printed, and I still don't exactly know where I went wrong. This just seems like a fine-ish magic card. Like I don't think it's a world beater, but it seems like it should have seen more play than it did. So I like seeing this card show up. I don't know. My general opinion on mono black right now, vampires is better, but this does have a very clear solution to a problem these decks face, like you said. More disruption. Play more disruption. Next deck, Samurai Drive. Is it in Soul? These decks are always wild. I never know what to think about these, although this one is is relatively tame. Yeah, I was looking for some main deck Shadow Spears. They did not show up. This looks pretty stock for the most part. Any thoughts on how playable this archetype is at this juncture? It's scary, but inconsistent. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And I think their sideboard hasn't improved as much as I would like. Like they have a pretty clear target now and the deck still looks very similar to what it looked like before. So yeah, that's a reasonable criticism. N.E. Ricky P. I would assume that this is uh, Nebraska's Rick Poling, but I could be wrong about that. Demir Inverter, 26 land, full 12 combo pieces, three thought erasure, one dispute main, one omen of the sea. That card stinks. Don't play that card. But the rest of this deck looks good. Yeah, a little bit of extra interaction. Tons of discard in the form of thought erasure. Thoughts on that specifically? Yeah, thought erasure is good. I going into Phoenix, I like despise, but that was before Lotus Breach kind of blew up. Okay. And now I would either just like play a mix or lean entirely on erasure, and I, I think that that's completely fine. So you're not reinventing the wheel when it comes to your Demir Inverter decklist at this point. You're just you're in on this eight creature setup, more interaction, and that's it. This deck is good enough as it stands. Yeah, I, I tried to reinvent it and come up with a sideboard plan that allowed me to shift into combo control, but like the pieces just aren't there, and the things that are there don't really get the job done in the way that you would want them to. So. From from playing against the deck with a wide variety of things, the thing that I was always scared of was just like how consistently they could reassemble the combo if given like two turns because mm -hmm. they just have a decent amount of velocity and re redundant combo pieces and stuff like that. So that was the scariest thing to me. So it was like, all right, well, let's, let's just max on it. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. I think that's a good way of going about things. Aspiring Spike, uh, one of my heroes, not quite on Matsugan level, quite yet, but this deck is getting them closer to being there. This is Mono Red Devotion for Leyline of Combustion for that easy early red pips. We got some Annexes, some Ash Zealots, which is a pretty good card right now. Eidolon of the Great Revel, the Chain Whirler Torbrand combo, uh, Chandra Torture Defiance, reasonable disruption cards in the sideboard, a couple Damping Spheres. I don't know. This is uh, a faster way to build this deck, Fanatic Amogus, only two glory bringers. So I'm I'm in support of that if you're going to do mono red devotion things. Aspiring Spike is just adding every ley line to every single devotion deck. I wrote about his mono blue devotion list in my article this week, which had ley line of anticipation in it and thought that was actually a really big upgrade for that archetype. Yeah, I went down this path too. I just didn't like actually build them and play with them and win with them. Right. Aspiring Spike doing the hard part and getting the W's here, but I do have to pump the brakes a little bit. I I don't see a ton of reason to do this. Also, these Burning Tree Emissaries are super awkward. 
they, they don't do exactly what you want them to. I will tell you that because there's a lot of pips here and it's hard to get them to turn on. Certainly if you have a Nykthos, they will pop off, but there's other draws where they're not going to be as impactful as you would at first expect. No, I mean, if you have, if you have dubs, cool, but otherwise you just jam it turn three with an annex or you play like Leyline into Ash Zealot into Burning Tree with Nykthos. And I think that like Burning Tree into Nykthos makes it worth playing. Probably. That's that's probably fine. I, I just wish it was a little bit better at casting my spells. And I, I guarantee you're going to feel that at some point. I'm not saying it's a fatal flaw and it's probably still worth it when you're this hard on Nykthos and you're going as far as Fanatic of Mogus. But I know I would occasionally find some points of frustration with Burning Tree Emissary. And I do have to ask, like, why are we doing this short of the win with all the ley lines, which is a goal I'm certainly all for. Like, <laughs> Explore all of these synergies, see if any of them really pop. But this doesn't strike me as a deck that's going to have a faster clock than your average mono red list. It doesn't have extra disruption. It doesn't really have that much more staying power. Like Annex is a little bit of a pickup in that regard, but not much of one. Maybe a little extra reach is the main payoff in the form of Fanatic of Mogus. But one of the awkward things about Fnatic is that when it's reached, that means your game plan is already pretty okay for the most part. Now, you mentioned Uro and like forcing damage around Uro is good, but I think there's other ways mono red specifically can do that. I look at this like if I want to play a red beat down deck and I want to play Ash Zealot and maybe Eidolon, I, Ash Zealot kind of like leans itself towards uh, a bigger build and you have the incentives for Nykthos, and there are enough payoffs for it, and I don't know, just like, the, the prowess creatures are very good, right? But like, the, the things that enable them are not good, like Shock and Lightning Strike, those things are way below par for sure. the format, and they also don't line up really against anything, so it's like, alright, how do we build mono-red creatures with these disruptive cards, and then you just kind of end up here, which I'm fine with. Okay. A point I would like to share, I played a ton of Mono Red Devotion in Standard, actually. I really liked this deck in that format. Uh, I played a bunch of Mono Blue, too, but both those decks were kind of my wheelhouse decks. I just now realized that Fanatic of Mogus is not some weird Cobra thing with a glowing head. It's, in fact, a Minotaur with its arms crossed above it. And yeah. I've, I've looked at this card probably a thousand times and just realized that in this moment. Okay. Interesting. There, there are definitely cards like that where I'm just like... You know, I, I think it's one thing, like, you know, once you see the face in this image, you can't unsee Sig it. Around. Signal Pest is the big one that everyone talks about. Nobody knows what that card actually is until you stare at it. Uh, yeah, I think someone did this on social media a few years ago, but whatever, yeah. I'm off it. Next. Logic Void. Ken Yukihiro.deck. Alcyids and Srams and Kirimetra's Blessings. This deck's starting to win a lot more. It picked up the uh, the challenge this past weekend. I'm seeing it all over the... God, there's so many different forms. I don't even know what they're called anymore. What's the other one called? Preliminary. It was all of the preliminaries with a good performance over the past couple weeks. So last week, we kind of didn't know what to do with this deck. Maybe it was two weeks ago. Are you starting to become a believer that this is just part of the format now? I think so. I mean, you're seeing a lot of different bogglesy type things showing up and this one is completely reasonable yeah a little bit extra disruption by branching out into black and you can understand why that's a good thing what do you think about the i realize this is very abstract and doesn't serve all that much of a purpose because a lot of your other decisions will decide which direction you go but what do you think about blue disruption versus black disruption right now is there a direction you're leaning in the abstract like, if you have black disruption, you kind of want a lot of it. 
or you want to complement it with blue disruption. So like you get to thought seize them, but also counter their top deck. Uh, okay. But a lot of these decks just have so many redundant pieces that you can't just like thought seize them once and take their combo card. Like you just have to thought seize them a bunch of times and cut them down on resources. And I don't know. The, the blue cards are mostly just like one counter spell is more impactful, but they also have a lot of drawbacks like, you know, negate disdainful stroke mystical dispute are all good against different things. I don't think, that you could force me to choose just one because it also matters like what the surrounding package is, you know? Sure. I don't think that all these enchantments with a couple thought seizes is good enough for whatever that's worth. Yeah, it's weird. Very small disruption package. Obviously there's the brain maggots as well, but uh, not a, not a whole lot of interacting with your opponent going on here. Yeah. Just trying to get them dead and that works some of the time, but I wouldn't want to lean on that. Last up we have, uh, either be a kid or be kid. I'm not sure. White, black, wild deck. Uh, Doom Foretold is kind of the thing that's going on here. 25 lands, but like there's 11 different ones. A lot of one ofs in Cavalier of Dawn, Kalidus, Lyra, uh, Liliana, getting in the trials we see. Thraven Inspector Yerox Fenlurker are very good with Doom Foretold. Thoughts he's Fatal Push. So like, this deck is kind of doing things that I like. You're mostly just like grinding people into the dust and have getting the trials and thoughtsies to protect yourself, but I'm not sure if this is the best way to go about things. I think this will kill you as slow as molasses, and that is not, not what I want to do right now. Even like this deck exactly as built might not be good enough for standard right now, so... Like the upgrades nah. are pretty small. It's like Thought Seize, Fatal Push. They're just removal spells and a little bit of disruption. Like, I don't know. This, Thra- this doesn't Thraven strike me Inspector, as anything. Thraven Inspector's busted. Come on now. Thraven Inspector's good. Okay. that That is probably the biggest upgrade. But on the whole, this feels like it doesn't line up all that well with what the format's about. If things shifted more towards the middle, I could buy this. This probably does a really good job of smashing the people trying to do one thing per turn. I can't imagine the old like mono red one threat decks playing against this. They would just get absolutely smushed. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. This is targeting a section of the metagame that I don't think needs to be targeted right now. But I, I mean, I was really excited to see this deck list. I thought it looked really cool. I don't mind Yerox Fenlurker as a way to constrict resources for the combo decks when backed up by other disruption, but Four Thoughtseize is pretty light. I guess you have Charming Prince to blink the Fenlurker, but I would like to see some more disruptive, like more discard elements up in here. Yeah, maybe we could go harder in that direction, the Charming Prince, Fenlurker stuff, and less Gaunt. Like, you already have your mid-range engine. How impactful actually is Gaunti? It's cool that it trades with an Uro, but... Yeah, I suppose that's true. I don't know. That's it. Those are the decks. What did you think of our trapes through the Pioneer deck dump? It's been a, it's been a minute since we did one of these. It has. Uh, I have some stuff to work on, that's for sure. I definitely, from going over the deck list and talking about it with you, you know, things like Thought Nazi or Heart of Kirin, I already recognized as like, okay, yeah, that's definitely a thing that you can be doing. But now I'm actually excited to go work on those decks, which... Kind of stinks because I have to finish an article tonight and I'm writing about Sultai. Womp womp. So I I'm know gonna... the pain of the article that you have to finish, but it's not about the thing that you're excited at this very moment. I was excited about it. I mean, I started writing it like two days ago and got pretty far, but now I'm, you know, just the ADD, man. I, I got distracted. 
I'm probably going to sink a couple hours into building decks around these colorless cards. And then we'll see if I get to finishing that article. Well, I wish you the best of luck in both your article and your deck building adventures. And I, I think that's a cool react reaction to have to doing this because that's like what we're trying to show. This is when people ask, how do you go about building decks? How do you go about attacking a format in a new way? A lot of it is just this. It's a, having these conversations sometimes with you, sometimes with ourselves and just thinking about, okay, what actually is going on here? What points can I really seize on and then build out to their fullest? Yeah. And who knows, maybe by the end of it, I'll be crewing my Heart of Kirins with Uro in my Sultai deck. Who knows? Ooh, that's an interesting wrinkle. <laughs> yeah, I think, I guess we have Pioneer stuff coming up, right? Like you're you're doing commentary at some shows. Are you going to be in Baltimore? I am not in Baltimore. My next two shows are Syracuse, which I do believe is a Pioneer event. I'm pretty sure. I think Pioneer is the next few. I like Baltimore is second week of March. That's Pioneer. So I knew that there was a lot of Pioneer stuff coming up. Indy this weekend's Pioneer. Are you going to be in Baltimore? Is that why you're asking? I should be in Baltimore. That's that's a long ways away from Seattle, Jerry. That's true. I don't I don't know what to make of this. Don't worry about it. Okay. I lied to you. Syracuse is modern. So the next event I cover is modern, but then I will head to Atlanta and I will be covering Pioneer at that event. So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I will look forward to just having straight Pioneer. Certainly I've covered a bunch of Pioneer at this point, but it's often in the multi-format context. It'll be cool to just have an entire tournament of Pioneer. Yeah. Yeah. And like no half seas draft or anything. So like, this is it. This is as pure as it gets. Right. This is how you separate the best decks out from the format, figure out who's really standing on top. So that's going to do it for this week's cast. If you appreciate what we do, if you like what we do, uh, check us out at patreon.com slash arena decklist. You get access into our wonderful discord server, which is basically the best possible resource you can have as an aspiring magic player. And if anything, I am more reserved, right? Like I'm not going to espouse that unless I truly believe it to be true. So definitely try and get in the discord. If you can, it's very, very helpful place. Very wonderful. Every week we solicit the people in our discord for their burning questions. We pick one that we think is very good, maybe fun to answer uh, something that can provide value to our listeners and the person who we pick gets uh, an arena decklist enamel pin. It's the only place that you can get those on the earth uh, unless you robbed my house, I guess. But uh, the question this week comes don't, from Arnor. Don't do that. Don't rob Jerry's house. He's been through enough. Dude, I'm, I'm about to move, man. It's fine. They'll never find me. That's true. Question comes from Arnor. And they ask, uh, with the format having been shaped by the pros, how do we go about approaching the format to be the best? Are we finding the new great deck in the current meta or do we tune the best lists even more? Do we work on the next big thing with the assumption that the big decks will get banned before the next big tournament? This is a big question. This is, well, it's several questions. It's a lot to unpack and I kind of get it where you have all this information and now it's just kind of like, what do you do with it? And I think a lot of that depends on, what is coming up for you and what sort of tournaments that you're trying to play in. If you're just trying to keep up with the format and, uh, you know, figure out what's going on because maybe you have a tournament like two months from now or something that 
is impactful or important, then I think you can sort of keep tabs on it without necessarily like doing any big work yourself. But if you do want to like grind magic online, play in PTQs and help keep the format moving along, I think what I would try and do is there's this narrative of inverter and breach being these absurdly powerful combo decks that are likely going to deserve bans, blah, blah, blah. Watsi has chosen to so far not take action against them, which I think should be somewhat telling because this has kind of been the ban format thus far. I know that they're sort of trying to tone that down a little bit, but I would imagine that if things were really a problem that they would take action. But even as we mentioned on the cast, I mean, like going through all of the recent lists, I mean, like Lotus Breach shows up here and there, you know, Luis 5-0'd with it, but like it's Luis, right? Uh, what about everyone else playing it in the the preliminary PTQs and stuff like that? I mean, they don't seem to be doing that well. So I think at this point you can probably discern that Lotus Breach is not going to be tier one going forward. People are going to be prepared for it. Obviously, at some point that's going to circle around. People are going to cut their damping spheres, etc. But we're not there yet. Uh, Inverter is the deck to beat. So do you want to just pick up Inverter, tune Inverter, uh, learn the insides and outs, or do you want to make some uh, sort of harder metagame read and just be like, well, everyone's going to be playing Inverter and Breach because of the information cascades and the the word that's going around and everything. So maybe I'll play Spirits or Mono Red or any of the various decks that we talked about on the cast that could potentially be good against those two. That's kind of up to you how you want to approach it and what you think is interesting, what you would enjoy actually working on, and also what your skill set is, you know? Uh, for me, I think if I had a tournament this weekend, I would just play Inverter because it's the best deck. There's not a lot of time. I could probably make some very reasonable judgment calls for how I want to build the deck and everything. Saltai is also a fine option, which is a way that I tried to attack the format and like tune something else to beat the top tier. So I think both things are viable, but once you get far enough along a certain path, I think you should be able to tell whether or not this is better or worse than doing the other thing. You know, like what if I try and tune Saltai and I'm not having great results? It's like, well, okay, maybe I should abandon this and go with the other plan, see how that works out. I think that approach makes a lot of sense. I want to point that the issue of a best deck is one of degrees. There will always be a best deck. That is an inescapable truth of magic. The problem only arises when the best deck is the best deck by an unacceptable margin or is the best deck with an unacceptable play pattern. If I have concerns about Breach and Demir Inverter, they are based a lot more on play pattern than actual dominance. I have a feeling these are the two best decks, but I think probably not by a huge margin. I wouldn't be surprised to see like 53% win rates for Inverter. And then I think, like you said, Lotus Breach is trending down. And it wouldn't surprise me if its win rate is floating slightly over 50% right now, but not by much. And these are complete guesses. I don't have any way to check this. I really wish I did. But that's just kind of my gut feeling on where things stand. And if that is the case, then there's a lot of merit to trying to just build through these decks, attack these decks. And as we talked through that deck dump, I felt the constraints 
of these two decks, but they weren't overwhelming. It didn't feel like all creativity had been squeezed out of the format. And this is still a very young format. There's still a lot of space to explore. There's still the chance of just a breakout deck. I mean, Sultai Delirium was not part of the equation until, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And now that's certainly taken up reign in the top tier. If there's something else that shows up out of nowhere, it could really upset this whole balance. So I think the best way to engage with Pioneer right now is just like you would any other format, just like you would engage with standard. I believe these are the best decks. What can we do about it? How can I beat it? If you have other competing interests, if you have financial concerns where you can't afford to make a kind of investment into things right now, I get that. I understand. And I know that's frustrating. It's a unfortunate reality of Magic the Gathering. And I, I wish I had a better and kinder response to that but it, it just is something that we have all dealt with. We feel the pinch of being priced out of the deck we really want to play or not being comfortable that our cards won't get banned from under us. So I respect that and understand that's frustrating, but it's just not something we can predict. And I don't, I don't know what else to say about it beyond that. I, I mean, I, I get it and I want to be receptive to your concerns, but it's just the world we live in, especially when it comes to this format. So you could do the thing and take something a little bit safer that feels a little bit uh, below the radar of something like spirits, probably very safe right now. And I think one of the good things about spirits is that creature base can be built out in a bunch of different ways and probably expands over time. I would say the same thing about humans, actually, and humans not very good right now. It's not a deck, but you could see some merits in going down like the mono white devotion list we looked at that was built around Thraben, or excuse me, Thalia's Lieutenant, Benelish Marshall. That list looked fine as a future pillar of Pioneer. So there are some options as far as those things go. I hope you find one that works for you, but I enjoyed our conversation this week. And if I'm enjoying conversations about a format, that usually means there's a lot of space left to grow. Yeah, I I agree with you that we felt the constraints, but we also had a lot of options and I'm excited to explore some of those options. Some of them I've already explored to decent success. So uh, the world is not ending. I will say uh, that if the win rates are not dominant, and that is why Watsi has not taken action. This would have been a good opportunity to release some data and be like, yeah, I, I think they should do a podcast straight up. I, I honestly think there should be a weekly podcast about bands. And I, I know that sounds like cringy to some people and they don't want to see more leaning into it, but just giving out that information. Like, I don't know how many people actually make this decision over at Watsi, but if you have a weekly band conversation on your calendar, just record it and put it out there. Like what's the downside? That would be dope. Yeah, I think that's the best way to do it. And I don't know. I I mean, I understand the hesitance and you're certainly peeling back the curtain a lot and you leave yourself open to a lot of criticism, but look, you're going to get the criticism anyway. Like you can't win at this point. And I, it feels like it would be a more constructive environment, uh, an environment that was conducive to having productive conversations about these issues if we just had access to a little bit more information. And I I don't know that the veil of secrecy has to be so intense. I mean, think about how modern game developers engage with their audiences. And certainly this has some backlash. I'm not going to paint it as all positives, but a company like Riot, when they're talking about nerfs to champions, they're out there talking to the player base the entire time saying, we're considering these, these, And these things, for these reasons, here's why we're going to do a test run with this and see how this works. And it's a very open process where it feels like this ban process is 
entirely behind closed doors. Nobody but the staff at the Renton Applebee's knows what's going on with, <laughs> with bands ahead of time. And maybe maybe I, don't I should know put in an application. That's a good idea. Just get a job over at the Applebee's. Really bring our, our fans that up-to-date knowledge. Yeah, that'd be dope. I also, I don't know. I That would obviously be a very bad idea. But uh, if you're at Pro Tours and you are one of the higher level pros, you have probably had discussions like that with Watsy staff. And for example, at like Pro Tour Almancat when Marvel was like this scourge, right? Uh, I was talking to a few people who were throwing ideas at me where it's like, what if we just said duress was legal tomorrow? Would that solve the problem? What if we said pithing needle was legal tomorrow? Would that solve the problem? You know, like they were throwing a bunch of ideas out there that ultimately didn't see the light of day, you know, because they had a bunch of issues with them, but still, you know, like those conversations do happen to some degree, definitely not to the extent that, you know, riot has with its player base. Yeah, they just feel a little bit more accessible than the way these right. conversations happen presently. Yep. Mysteries. Just my idea. It's free. Take it. Take it, Watsy. Do your thing. Put out that podcast. No, nah, they can't because they can't use your idea because then you might sue them, right? If you need me to sign something, I will. I promise. I'm <laughs> not going to sue you. <laughs> I, I truly promise I won't sue you for putting out the Bandless podcast. It is yours. Likely story, former lawyer. Mm, they're falling right into my trap. That's game. Good luck.